I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? Are we going legal on this? I like football. I like football season and all the things that go with it. In the NFL, justice is swift, and the league has already come down and given us justice for the two incidents we talked about yesterday, the Detroit Lions, uh, Brad Allen mess uh, that happened on one of the late plays in the Dallas Cowboys game, and of course, David Tepper throwing a drink all over a fan. The uh, David Tepper's been fined. It's been uh, conduct, you know, detrimental to the league. Can't do that kind of thing. It's an unacceptable breach of, uh, of etiquette towards fans. Uh, the Lions, on the other hand, were at fault, apparently, for Brad Allen's mistake. The NFL has released a video explaining that it was all Detroit's fault and that the ref's incompetence is something the teams have to catch live at the time. Um, so that's basically where we are on Wednesday, January the 3rd. But we also get to welcome back our buddy Trevor Sikama after the uh, the Christmas break. How's it going? Good, sir? Uh, it's going good. Yeah, uh, I, I think that, you know, if the Lions have to also now police the refs, mm-hmm. That makes them managers, okay? And anybody who's in the workforce knows that once you have to manage people, the bag goes up, okay? They need to increase (laughs) the salary. That's all I'm saying. If you want to say it's the Lions' fault, that's fine. You just got to pay more money because now at that point, now they are managing people. And anytime you got to do that, you know, you got to pay for it. So that's that's all I'm saying for Detroit. So where does that money go? Who are we giving it to? Uh, I guess Dan Campbell. Dan Campbell? Because he's, I guess, like, he's supposed to catch. He's going to be like, all right, okay, in this play, you're going to report. But then the refs are going to mess up that you're going to report. So then we're going to get the flag. And then when that happens, here's the other play that we do. So it's almost like, I feel like it's Dan Campbell, you know, as, as the man in charge of the organization. Now this is one other entity that he has to manage. Yeah. I feel like he's got to get the money for it. It's interesting. The, the video that the NFL sent out to all 32 teams, essentially reminding them that it is their responsibility to ensure that the ref doesn't screw this up. It, it showed video of two different plays of Dan Skipper reporting. And it, it essentially, it implicitly continues the party line, which is to call the Lions liars and say Skipper reported, even though Skipper says he didn't, Taylor Decker says he didn't, Dan Campbell says he didn't, all of the relevant people except the ref say that Skipper did not report. And the NFL's video essentially still implicitly says they're lying. Listen, we can all put on our tinfoil hats here and understand that every microphone that's ever around you is live at all times, okay? Mm-hmm. Your phone is live at all times listening to you, all that kinds of stuff. We've got something somewhere. Apple, Google, somebody's <laughs> got something where we can actually hear whether or not Dan Skipper said something. Oh, 100%. And I think that we, it, it is owed to us the truth. This, everything, yeah, the referee is on a microphone at all times. New York can hear everything he says. And if you think that that isn't being recorded, if simply for legal protection for the NFL, you're out of your mind. There is a recording somewhere of exactly what happened on that play. And there's not a chance in hell the NFL will ever make that public. So, So what I'm hearing is that me and you need to break in to the NFL offices 
go into that, you know, Hollywood room where it's just a bunch of servers that are like right. beeping with like all the different lights and the tape going everywhere. And we need to find this and we need to to, to bring it to the light. Me and you need to do this. I, I think we're going to need to bring Tyler with us just because you and me navigating that room of computers and finding a specific file on it feels like something that's not going to happen quickly. So I, I feel like we need someone that understands where that might be within the room. And then we can then we can attack this project. Yeah. Yeah, look, I said that we could do it. I didn't say we could do it quickly. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It would take a while. Anyway, before we get into the real show, uh, we've got to talk about securing your family's financial future, starting with life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life makes it quick, easy, and affordable to protect your family so you can get back to enjoying life or breaking into the NFL offices in Park Avenue. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in minutes at meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. That's meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash PFFNFL. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company not available in certain states. Price is subject to underwriting and health questions. Whew. Um, all right. Let me start with going back to the uh, college football playoffs that we didn't cover on the show yesterday. Um, I want to talk to you about it from a draft perspective. Who were sort of draft-relevant players that stood out in those two games and, and were important and we should talk about? Yeah, I mean – we have to start with Washington quarterback Michael Penix, who had the type of game that was reminiscent of what C.J. Stroud did last year against Ohio State. Like, Georgia. when we watched Stroud for his first two years at Georgia, or sorry, at Ohio State, um, he played well, but the level of competition that he played well against was always lower. And it, when, it, when it came to like, oh, okay, this is a team that actually knows how to pressure them. This is a team that actually knows how to get after Ohio State's offensive line. Those are the instances where Stroud tended to struggle. And so that was something that I weighed pretty heavily in my scouting reports of him last year is, man, love the physical tools, love the ability. When it's all clicking, clearly Stroud is an NFL caliber quarterback. But watching guys struggle consistently under pressure – that's tough. That's tough to project that success to the league. You go to that Georgia game. This is the most important game he has ever played. This is against the best defense that he has ever played. And this is the team that pressured him more than any other team that he had ever played. And he was phenomenal. He was so stellar in that performance, albeit in a loss. And that was kind of the, the question of his offseason before the draft. is made. How much do you weigh this game? And it ended up being a major catalyst for why people loved him, why people were solidified on the talents that we had seen throughout the previous two years. He obviously goes to the Houston Texans. He started. He's unbelievable. He's going to win Rookie of the Year. He's had MVP thoughts. Michael Penix, I'm not saying that he's going to achieve all of those things, but what we saw against Texas that night in a college football playoff game, six big-time throws, over 400 yards, just a howitzer of an arm with so many impressive throws in that game, it made you think back to what Stroud was able to do last year. So I'm not saying that Penix is now going to go 
you know, number in, in the top three or like wherever it's going to be, top three, top five. I don't think that he's going to go in the top three or the top five. But th- this Monday's game was so big for him because it was a major step forward. He now gets to play for a title. We get to see him again. And if he plays well again in the national championship, we are going to start talking about this guy as a top half of the first round player, maybe even a top 10 player. And and I don't, it's to be seen whether or not that is overblown, but the type of performance that he had on Monday night, if he repeats that for a title, it's going to mean a lot to NFL teams when the draft comes around. Yeah, and did I see he's going to the Senior Bowl as well? Um, he, uh, I don't. It's not official that he is going to the Senior okay. Bowl. I think they, Nagy. I think Nagy talked about him going to Mobile, so right. I'm sure that they would like for him to be in Mobile. But with them making the College Football Playoff and the National Championship, that's a really long season for him. True. So. I don't know if you want to turn around in three weeks and then throw again in Mobile. So they pro- uh, certainly they have been in contact with Michael Penix. I imagine that with Nagy tweeting out that he might be in Mobile, there's interest there. But it's not he hasn't officially accepted. Okay, that would be fascinating to have him there. And Bo Nix, I saw, has accepted officially yes. and is going to be there. Yes. I mean, that's 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 giving the Senior Bowl a bunch of those quarterbacks that you know are in that conversation for who's the next guy who's going to go in the in the first round like who are the quarterbacks the teams are going to be clamoring for even the ones that have sort of slightly unusual pathways to this spot which is going to be more and more common with the you know the way the college football landscape is now the transfer portal and all that kind of craziness like you're not you're going to see more and more guys that started off one place you know didn't have success early bounced around went to a different school and then put it together for a year or two that I I think we're still in the world where that's a bit of a red flag to teams, but it's it's not going to be the more common it gets going forward. Um, yeah, yeah. Who else then in those two games was a, a notable standout? So I'll stay with Washington and Texas because there's two defensive linemen that I really wanted to highlight. One is Washington edge rusher Braylon Trice, who has been a pressure machine all season as an edge rusher. You know, it hasn't been as much of a finisher, hasn't won one-on-one as much as some of the other edge rushers in this class. But when it comes to getting pressure and forcing the quarterback to move off of their platform, very few players have done it better than Braylon Trice. And he led all the players in those two games in total pressures. He had seven total pressures. He had about a 14% pass rush win percentage. Um, and obviously it says on the screen there, he was a defensive game MVP for that one. He affected the game in so many different ways. And on the other side of the ball, for Texas, Tavondre Sweat, the massive interior defensive lineman, the nose tackle for them, gets a lot of praise. But the player who is next to him, Byron Murphy II, he is much smaller. He's more of like, you know, six foot two, six foot three, you know, somewhere maybe in the high 290s, 300 pounds. But man, is he quick. He is somebody who is getting better and better with winning with that first step ex- explosiveness. There were a couple of plays that they showed on replay on Monday night where he's beating two players. Like he is winning with a first step and he's getting in between a gap and then he is swim moving whoever is coming in. Maybe it was a running back who's coming in to try to block him. And so just the devastating quickness from the three technique position that Byron Murphy the second is showing. If, if, if Again, if, if, if it was a different class maybe he's somebody because he's really young. So like maybe we're not talking about him as a potential first rounder, but there's not a lot of guys in this interior defensive line class who can do what he does. There's not a lot of pure pass rushers that you love to invest in. And so for that, I don't know. 
know, I feel like Byron Murphy playing himself into like a top 50 pick. That that position is so important. If you can win with that kind of pass rush quickness, the way that he has shown he is capable of doing, that that's super valuable. So we don't talk about this guy enough. Maybe I maybe I certainly need to do this as the, as the the lead draft analyst. I need to talk about him more, but I'm trying to do it here on this show. I think he's got a chance to be a top 50 pick, man. I think he's got a chance to be one of the top defensive linemen, interior defensive linemen, I should say, drafted in this class because of what he can do as a pass rusher. I, I've, I've teed you up, and I'm waiting for it, and it still hasn't happened. You haven't brought up my guy, Jalen Polk. So, all right. Jalen Polk's Jalen Polk's pretty good, isn't he? I mean, yeah, like, yeah he we, is. we 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 talked about we talked about Michael Penix and and how great he was, and the, his fellow receiver Romo Dunze mm-hmm. had a really nice night. Obviously, some great contested catches. He showcased his route running ability with a bigger body. But Polk is kind of that same thing, you know. I I think I I, I don't think that Polk's going to be a wide receiver one at the next level. But in terms of him being a wide receiver two. It's a pretty damn good wide receiver, too, and he's showing that at Washington because I think Odunze is a wide receiver one at the next level, and he's already showing what kind of a great compliment that he could be. Yeah, I think the routes are sometimes a little tight for him, but, man, the contested catches, the over-the-shoulder catches, the deep ball catches, there's an art to tracking the ball deep, coming down with it, and being such a strong contested catch player, and he absolutely was that. You see right there, six catches, six targets. Or, sorry, that's that's actually Roman Odunze right there. But, I, look, five five I think that Polk. Polk, to your point, is a very good football player. I don't think he's going to go in the first round. Maybe you could push back on me on that a little bit, but he is certainly a reason why Washington is at this point and, and why they are um, going to be playing for a national championship on Monday night. Yeah, five for five for Polk. He also broke three tackles in there. He averaged like almost 25 yards a catch, uh, had the touchdown, caught call from behind on that other one, but, you know, we'll live with that. I, I, I agree okay. with you. Yeah. I, I don't think he'll go in the first round, but like if I don't have, or if I've got a uh, a bigger need to spend a first round pick on, but I still need a wide receiver, he's one hundred percent a guy that I would be looking at to try and snag in the second round because I think that guy is going to be a really really good receiver at the next level. I cannot understate this. This wide receiver class Loaded. is so good. It is so good, and I think people are going to look at how deep it is. And it's going to be like, oh, okay, well, you don't have to pick a guy in the first round because you know we can get him in the second or third round. That's a strategy that could certainly work out for teams, you know, depending on how you want to play the draft board, the game of chess that you have with certain team needs, all that kinds of stuff. But the players who you would pick in the first round are damn good as well. So it, it, it's not even like the talent at the top of this receiver class is so good. The, the fact that it's deep doesn't take away from the desire to pick one of these guys in the top 32 with a first-round selection. So that is the caliber of class that we're talking about here, man. We we might break a record with wide receivers and, and, and how many are drafted in the top 100. There was a couple of years ago, it was Mel Kiefer who said this. Oh, what draft was this? Maybe it was the 2019 draft, 2020 draft. But he, he, he said, hey, I could see 18 or 20 receivers going in the top 100 picks. So I'm like, 20 receivers in the top 20? What are you talking about? And I actually tried to go through the exercise and find places for 20 wide receivers. And it was tough. I could get 15 somewhat realistically. But then those last five, it's like, okay, this is way unrealistic. We might get 20 this year. I don't I don't know. I might be talking out of the side of my head because I haven't actually sat down to put the landing spots. But, right. you know, I, I go through these mock drafts, man, and 
There's 32 picks in the first round. Eight of them are wide receivers for me, like every time. You know, I will get at least 12 in the top 50 because then you get, you know, you get the Browns in there, you get the Panthers in there, obviously picking for the first time at the top of the second round. So those are two teams that need wide receiver. You can pencil those in for top 75 picks. So, man, it's just, it's exciting. Jalen Polk is, is part of, of a bigger umbrella of just how talented this wide receiver class is. And in many other years, I feel like Polk would have a shot to be a first round wide receiver. But sure. this year, Probably not just because of the depth of the class. I think it's easier, though. Like, once you get beyond the first round, it's easy to start slotting receivers to teams because no team is set at wide receiver. I mean, even a team like even a yeah. team like the Bengals, right, with Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd, you reach a point where those guys are all going to have to get paid or you're going to have to move one on for a young receiver. So even in teams that you think have no need at wide receiver whatsoever – are at minimum like a year or two away from having a need at wide receiver. And if you've been able to draft a guy in the second or third round that can step into that void and allow you to get cheaper and younger at the position, that's an important like roster construction move. So maybe you don't want to spend a first round pick on that guy, but you absolutely are not going to be sad that you spent a second or a third round pick on it. So I think, yeah, it's, it's if the talent is there, it's easy to start firing 20 wide receivers to NFL teams over the first few rounds. Um, what about the other game, the Michigan-Alabama game? So the Michigan-Alabama game, I think the two players that I was really impressed with that um, stood out in some big ways, maybe two lesser names for the NFL draft. I think people have heard them before. Rod Moore, the safety for Michigan, is somebody who I think had a, a really nice game. You know, he was hurt at the beginning of the year, missed I think four games to start the season, but I liked him going into the year. He was one of my top five safeties. Uh, in the draft class going into the season. So we didn't get to see him for those first four games. So I think he's come on really, really nice. Graded really well in coverage. Um, really solid grade in the mid-70s, which was which was nice. I think he had the one really impactful play against, man, who was it? It must have been Jermaine Burton. I think they were trying to hit deep, and he ended up covering really, really well. Um, and I just feel as though what Rod Moore was able to do on the back end was so advantageous for the Wolverines' defense overall because Jalen Milrow is a quarterback who yes he's got that athletic ability but he also loves to throw the deep ball like he's got quite the arm to him when it comes to distance so with his athletic ability he forces defenses to continue to creep up and 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 reallocate more resources into the box to try to stop him because he is so athletic you can't have this guy picking up you know six seven eight nine ten yards per clip on you so you've got to allocate more bodies to it you've got to be able to corral him and bring him down and when you put more bodies in the box, that's when Milrow will hit you deep. That's when they will start calling those vertical shot plays. Well, when Alabama tried to go to that, especially in the first half, Rod Moore was a big reason why as a deep safety, he kept everything in front of him. He was very poised. He was very impactful with not allowing those throwing windows to manifest, or even when they did, he was able to make a play on the ball. So in a safety class that doesn't have a ton of stars, I think Rod Moore, if he ends up declaring, uh, he could be a, a a a big one and a really nice one to get maybe somewhere on day two for a team. And then the other Michigan player, their linebacker, Junior Colson, I think also played well. I thought he played good in coverage, which is very important, right? We talk about linebackers, where's the value, where's the advantage? The coverage grade I thought was pretty good for him. You see those grades there on the screen, very all around, 73.2 overall, 85.2 tackling. It was very reliable against Alabama. And then that 78.6 coverage grade, that's really nice for a linebacker that has a lot of different responsibilities. So he played really well. He's somebody that um, I liked going into the year, but I felt like he was a little inconsistent, wasn't as anticipatory as he needed to be to make those impactful plays. And here we are at the end of the season, now going into the national championship. I think he is at that point. So again, 
a linebacker class that is looking for those stars. Who's going to stand out? Who's going to be some of those uh, got to have them types of players in this class? Perhaps Junior Colson ends up being one of those guys when it's all said and done. The other guy I thought that played well and kind of cemented his his status for me is Blake Corum, the running back from Michigan. Um, I, I mean, I, I think he's probably the best running back in this draft class. It's it's one where there won't be, I don't think, a consensus number one guy. It'll be a lot of different names at the that running back one position. But he played well in the game, um, you know, broke a few tackles and obviously salted it away at the end with that with a really nice run. Um, I was impressed by him still. Yeah, I, I like Blake Corum a ton, man. I, I was really hoping that he would have declared after last year, but I understand why he didn't with the knee injury. You know, you don't want to go into the draft process of running back and it's like, okay, you're damaged goods throughout the draft process. Right. Because then at the combine, <clears throat> at your pro day, every time you see a team, it's almost like they, they have to be reminded, oh yeah, you're coming off a major knee injury at running back. That doesn't really help you. Because when you look at this year, you know the grades are the grades aren't i don't i don't want to say they're not great they're just fine though they're not like, oh okay we got to have this guy he had an right. 80 81.6 overall rushing grade this year but the past two years they were elite you yeah. know 2021 it was 91.1 <clears throat> last year was a 96.2 i mean this guy could not be stopped you talk about some of the stats that we use to take running backs and their individual ability outside of their offensive line. Cause and Michigan's a little dangerous, right? Michigan's had a really good offensive line over the last, I'll say two to three years. So how do you convince yourself that the rushing production from these guys is not just because of the offensive line? Well, a couple of stats that we have at PFF to do that are missed tackles, forced per attempt, and then yards after contact. So if you look at the forced missed tackles per attempt, in 2021 and 2022, so those those years that he had elite grades, it's a .34 and a .31. To give you guys context, some of the best numbers that we have recorded for draft prospects is like .44 with B. John Robinson. I think .42 was was Travis Etienne in one of those Clemson years, and then Javante Williams had a, a, a .44 as well. So for you to have a .34, anything above .3 is really dang good. That means that you have the individual talent to succeed uh, independent of your offensive line. So he had two back-to-back years where that was the case. This year, .11. Out of nowhere, it's just like, man, okay, coming off that knee injury really wasn't the same as forcing those missed tackles, whether it's broken tackles or whether it's with agility. And then the yards after contact. Those previous two years, 2021-2022, it was above three. You'd love to see that yards above contact average above three, and it was 3.8, it was 3.5. It was good, it was healthy, it's what you wanted to see. And then this year, 2.4. So as we're, so I have not talked a lot about Blake Corum this year, despite me really loving how he sees the position, his vision, his anticipation, how good he is as a blocker and a receiver. He's so well-rounded because I, I, I worried about it. I was like, man, did that knee injury really kind of hurt his ability to be a difference-making back? And I was really happy with the fact that against Alabama, he was able to put forth a performance and remind us that he is still a very talented football player because I agree. Now, after that game against Bama, and we'll see what he does in the national championship, he now reemerges into the RB1 conversation because that is another class that there is no solidified guys I think at the very top, within the top three, whatever it is. So he made his claim for that uh, this past Monday night. 
All right, we got in a, a few emails um, on a similar topic, and it's perfect for you as a, as a Bucks fan. Um, this one came in from Matt Reitzenstein. Uh, please compare future Hall of Famer Mike Evans' 10-year career so far amongst any and all 10-year spans amongst wide receivers. I'm not sure, but I reckon he ranks quite highly. Thank you, and Merry Christmas, an absurdly happy Bucks fan. Um, I forget where the other one came from, whether it was Twitter or an email. I couldn't find it again. But so on the one end of the spectrum, you've got future Hall of Famer Mike Evans, you know, look at all the records. And another guy sent in a question essentially saying, is Mike Evans wide receiver Frank Gore? So as a Bucks fan and a guy that has witnessed Mike Evans' career and this a- annual, you know, metronomic reminder that, oh, there's the, uh, there's the next consecutive 1,000-yard season for Mike Evans, what has Mike Evans been in the NFL? Where does his career stack up? Is he an all-time great? Or is he simply a product now of, you know, the, the kind of baseline of being a pretty good NFL wide receiver for 10 years? Uh, yeah, look, I'm, I'm firmly, I'm fir- this is shocking, I know. I'm firmly in the Mike <laughs> Evans is a Hall of Famer. Okay. I, I am firmly there because. Now, is this, look, hang on, we'll, 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 just to stop you there. Is this, yes. is this once we've cleared a backlog or like even relative to some of the people waiting now, he's a Hall of Famer? I don't think that he's going to be. A, I, I'm realistic to to know that he's not going to be a first ballot Hall of Fame, right? I think that him and Levante David are talented and have the longevity, have the success, have the have the stats, all those things. Both of those players, I think, are Hall of Fame caliber players. I don't know if. I mean, let's face it; they play in Tampa. You know, if these dudes played right. in a different market, a bigger market, it's it's probably a different story. And I think that goes into your argument of why. In a vacuum, these guys should be Hall of Famers. When you look at the numbers of what Mike Evans has been able to do, you know, we're not just talking about like total career yards or things like that, whatever. We're talking about like consistent, consecutive success. And the only players that have been able to do this in a similar conversation with Mike Evans are all Hall of Famers. It's Jerry Rice, it's Randy Moss, it's Terrell Owens, it's Larry Fitzgerald. Like those are the only dudes who are able to boast the total touchdown production, the consecutive one thousand yards. And people go like, "Oh, consecutive thousand yards!" Like it's not that big of a deal. There were a couple of years when he barely eclipsed that. You got to understand the quarterbacks this dude has played with. Yeah, sure, he played with Tom Brady for a few of them. It's it's but it's Tom Brady, it's Baker Mayfield, it's Jameis Winston, it's Ryan Fitzpatrick, it's Josh McCown, it's Blaine Gabbert, it's it's it, it's uh, Mike Glennon. Like these are all the different quarterbacks that no matter what, he's also had so many different offensive coordinators, so many different head coaches. So it's not like the man only played with Tom Brady his entire career. Right, it's not like he only played, and I don't even mean this to be a shot at like Marvin Harrison or Reggie Wayne or whatever, but it's not like he only played with Peyton Manning. He played with so many different quarterbacks, so many different head coaches, so many different offensive coordinators, different offensive lines, different outlooks on the team, different supporting casts, whether the team was good or whether the team was bad. And you know what he did every single time? Produce, 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 produce. Doesn't matter. To me, that's a talent in and of itself. Okay, so we never led the league in receiving yards. Okay, so he doesn't get talked about uh, in like as as like being at ninety nine overall in Madden or whatever. Longevity and consistency, when you have this kind of context, is absolutely something that should go into the conversation. You look at it right there. What's the what's the lowest receiving grade that Mike Evans has? It's kind of small on my screen, so I can't even see it. But it's good. It's like seventy five. 
The guy, the guy's worst year is still like a top fifteen receiver. And you also, if if you listen to those NFL player sound bites that they sometimes do for the NFL top one hundred, where the players vote on it, so many of them talk about Mike Evans. Like, yeah, he's 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 extremely tough to guard. You listen to defensive coordinators. Some of the first players that they will name, or the first player that they're going to name when they're going up against it. Yeah, it's Mike Evans. He's he's nailing the way that he moves, the way that he plays at six foot five, two hundred twenty five pounds. It's just different. And to me, all of that context says that this guy is one of the most talented players, the hardest working players, and a major reason why the Buccaneers were able to have success when they when they brought Tom Brady in, I think is because of Mike Evans. And I, I just don't think that he gets enough credit for that and also for what he's been able to do from the down years as well. So, yes, I think he's a Hall of Famer, and I think that the – the is he just Frank Gore kind of an argument <laughs> kind of I think that kind of stinks because it, it it downplays the work that he has put in to be this damn good every single season that he has played in the NFL and look staying healthy is yeah it's luck I get it but like staying healthy for this many years never missing a game that is also an asset to your Hall of Fame case because you did that. You were in the rehab room. You're in the strength and conditioning room. Yeah, okay, you got a little lucky. Of course, that goes into it. But I don't know, man. People just throw that out the window like, ah, he just happened to play a long time. Okay, he's also a reason why he's playing a long time because he takes care of his body because he works really hard. I don't know. I, I get Obviously, I get very fired up about it, but <laughs> Mike Evans is a Hall of Famer. So yes. this year, the, uh, the finalists – there's three wide receivers, I think, in the, the finalists for the Hall of Fame this year. Um, Andre Johnson, um, primarily from the Texans. Torrey Holt, primarily from the Rams. And Reggie Wayne from the Indianapolis Colts. It's an interesting trio because we've sort of just cleared the the backlog of like, I mean, Chris Carter was sitting there waiting for a giant period right. of time. And that right. dude finished like second in every statistical category when he retired to Jerry Rice, right? And we were waiting for him to get into the Hall of Fame. So I think the league has finally started to clear some of the backlog of wide receivers. And now we're getting to some guys that are actually in, I think, a vaguely comparable area to Mike Evans. I would say of that trio... Andre Johnson was definitely a better wide receiver than Mike Evans. I would say Torrey Holt was probably a better wide receiver than Mike Evans. And Reggie Wayne is the one where, you know, that's where you start weighing in, like how important was Peyton Manning for his entire career versus some of these other things. Uh, the other thing I find interesting is, you know, you were saying some of those years, Mike Evans sort of just scraped over a thousand yards. He never really led the league. This year is the first year of his career where he has a chance to lead the league in anything. He is currently leading the league in touchdowns with 13. He's one ahead of Tyreek Hill with obviously a week to, to play, and nobody else is within three of them. So this could be the first year of his career, and probably will be, where he has a chance to lead the league in any receiving category, which I just think is interesting. I, I kind of agree with you. I don't think he's Frank Gore, wide receiver Frank Gore, but what if I told you he was wide receiver Curtis Martin? I mean... <laughs> He's 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 better than look. I I don't I don't Curtis know. Curtis Martin's in the Hall of Fame. I, I, I don't I don't know how I would answer that conversation. But like when you list off Andre Johnson, Tory Holt, Reggie Wayne, is Mike Evans in the conversation with those dudes? Yes, yes, he is. So if you're considering them for the Hall of Fame, you're considering Mike Evans for the Hall of Fame. Anybody who could just look at Mike Evans and what he's done and be like, nah, 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 he's not a Hall of Famer, is like, all right, 
You just you just haven't really been paying enough attention to Tampa football, which I understand. Small market team, I get it, I get it, I get it. Not everybody's gonna pay attention to the Bucks. I think they've got like the worst winning percentage in the NFL all time. Like I understand it, but I'm here to tell you that like he's in the conversation with all three of those wide receivers, in my opinion. Those so, that's I, what makes him Hall of Fame worthy. Is he going to get in? I don't know because getting in, it's a little bit of a popularity contest. Like somebody told me. I don't remember if this was somebody like a, a Hall of Fame voter, if this is just like their stance or whatever. But I've heard, can you tell the the story of the NFL without this player? Ridiculous and argument, I, by the way. What? It's a ridiculous like oh, concept. Oh, I, I, I was going to say that's a bullshit way to go about this. Yeah. That's a, it's it's a terrible way to go about this. So I hope that that's not an actual thing. Like you could say. tell the story of the NFL literally without any single player or with all of them. Every single one of them just depends how detailed you want to be in your story. Like, I can tell you the story of the NFL in a nutshell, in a paragraph that doesn't mention a single football player. It's, it's very easy to do. You don't need, like, that's just a terrible, it's a terrible reasoning of argument for to yeah. define a Hall of Famer. If there's a guy sitting there in that room going, man, can I, like, somebody in that room has constructed this, like, personal story of the NFL that involves... However many people are in the hall right now, 50-something, you know, I don't know, whatever it is, 50, 100 it's players. A, it's, a lot, it's a lot more than that. Whatever. In this guy's brain, right, there's some mythical story of the NFL that features 126 players or whatever it is and nobody else, and now they're trying to work out if this guy is the 127th that fits neatly into the narrative. It's just it's absurd as a conversation. It makes right. no sense whatsoever. I hate that as, a, as an argument. Um, yeah, yeah. Like Mike Evans is an interesting player to discuss, and I think you're right. Like one of the elements that doesn't get talked about enough for any of these guys is what was their quarterback situation for most of their career. I mean, Andre Johnson is a great example of that, right? That guy did not have good quarterback play for a lot of his career. New Hopkins is going to be another one of those guys where like the list of people that he was getting it done with before Deshaun Watson showed up and played well is insane. Um, and yet you have other receivers who never played with a bad quarterback, right? Reggie Wayne basically had Peyton Manning for his entire career. Mm -hmm. uh, clearly, that makes a huge difference. The question is, how much of a difference and how much should you factor that in when you're discussing, you know, the, the yard? Like, those, those numbers we talked about. If Mike Evans goes through his career and never leads the league in any single category, okay, we know that if he'd, if he'd played with, you know, Tom Brady for every year of his career— how much would that have helped? How many times would he have led the league in something if Tom Brady had been his quarterback every single season? There's no way of knowing, and yet that's the crux of the argument when you start getting into Hall of Fame debates. Yeah, and I just, you know, he's he's got 13 touchdowns, right? He's got 13 receiving touchdowns, mm -hmm. and he might lead the league in it, right? I mean, we're one week away. He right. might end up leading, the and, and that would be a, hey, look, Mike Evans led the league in a certain category in a single year. Two years ago, he had 14. So it's like, and the year before that, he had 13. So it, it's like, oh, okay. Well, just because the rest of the league maybe like didn't have one or two guys that were ahead of him, to me, that should not take away from what he did. So I don't know. Maybe him leading the league with 13 receiving touchdowns at age 30 starts to get people to be like, oh, okay, yeah. I mean, like he's yeah, he's he he's he's still out here doing it. But when you look at all-time receiving touchdown leaders. Mike Evans is tied for 12th with Devontae Adams, who is also the only other active player. And for him to get into the top 10, he needs six more, and that would get him 
to 100 over 100 for his career so he would be in top he would be top 10 all time in total receiving touchdowns and i think mike evans is playing at least two more years in the league if, as long as he doesn't get hurt, he's he's hitting that. So this is somebody who is going to be in a category with only other Hall of Famers when it comes to consecutive 1,000-yard seasons. And he's going to be top 10 in the NFL in total receiving touchdowns. Look at the quarterbacks he did it with. It's a Hall of Famer. All right, before... Famer. Before we get into our next topic, we've got to tell you about our friends at Price Picks. Price Picks is the largest daily fantasy sports platform in North America. Um, the easiest and most exciting way to play DFS is just you against the numbers. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. Instead of battling thousands of other players, including pros and sharks, you pick more than or less than two to six players, stat projections, and watch the winnings roll in. Um, we have we have a Price Pick selection already. Eli's uh, thrown it into the chat, and he's given his explanation. We've got Jonathan Taylor going for more than 80 and a half rushing yards. We've got C.D. Lamb going for more than 99.5 receiving yards, and we've got Josh Allen going for more than 285.5 uh, passing and rushing yards. We, Eli's uh, is a very optimistic um, prize picks picker. They're always more. Which is, I need I need I need him to go full villain yeah. and just go only less. I just think for it's it's admirable to still have such an optimistic outlook on the prize picks <laughs> when they keep stabbing him in the back time after time after time <laughs> with you know one guy letting him down. I just I think it's impressive that he's able to still come back and go more for every possible statistical category when he's putting in his picks. Anyway, mm. you can get in your prize pick selections along with Eli, and you can play with some of the prize picks favorite players like rapper Meek Mill and comedian Andrew Schultz. You can find them in the community plays under the promos tab of the app to view entries from some of the biggest names in the prize picks community each week. Prize picks also offers a reboot policy so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. For football and basketball games, if you have a player that exits the game in the first half and does not return in the second, that player is rebooted. Prize picks is the only daily fantasy sports platform with an injury insurance policy. So go to prizepicks.com forward slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. That's prizepicks.com slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Remember, pick more, pick less. It's that easy with prize picks. All right. Uh, one more guy that was relevant to uh, both our wide receiver discussion and our uh, college football playoffs discussion. Uh, this one came in from Stephen Wolek. Wolek? Maybe. Let's hope. Um, you guys often talk about the Patriots' inability to draft wide receivers. With that in mind, if they draft Marvin Harrison Jr., does that change how we feel about him as a prospect? Or should they just avoid drafting him altogether? So the Patriots are now in this position where currently they pick number three overall. Um, the, there's three teams tied at a 4-12 and record going into the final game of the season. There are essentially two quarterbacks that we expect to go 1-2 and two in the draft. The third pick, everybody assumes, will be Marvin Harrison Jr. But the Patriots are now staring down the barrel of this decision of we might not be in a position to draft a quarterback. The next need we have might be wide receiver. And we historically stink at drafting wide receivers 
do we draft Marvin Harrison Jr. or are we acutely aware that we are terrible at this and liking Marvin Harrison Jr. can only mean he's terrible? Yeah, I think out of respect, they can't draft <laughs> Marvin Harrison Jr. to ruin his career before it begins. God, that is that is a that is a tough list of names there on the screen. Uh-huh. Uh that's that's rough. No, um it kind of feels like Bill's not making this pick anyways, right? Yeah, I mean, true. it kind of feels like the people who made these selections of said bad wide receivers aren't gonna be there to make the pick whether it's marvin harrison jr or not so i think uh new year new patriots maybe in that regard so maybe you just totally turn the page and you go no screw it we were bad at picking wide receivers now we're only picking wide receivers so they go like marvin harrison jr in the first round and mekig book in the second round uh 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 lad mcconkey in third i don't know who's gonna be i don't think he's gonna be in the third round maybe he was i don't know but no, you don't. You don't let past swings of the bat <laughs> that more strikeouts can prohibit you from picking Marvin Harrison Jr. It does set up a very interesting scenario. Like this, this week is is huge for the NFL draft because with the Cardinals winning, they're in that three way tie that you mentioned. But the Cardinals are not close in strength of schedule, so that which is the first tiebreaker. So if the Patriots or the Commanders lose. They have no chance of getting the number two overall pick. If both the commanders and the Patriots lose, the Cardinals will get the number three overall pick. Or if they win, they're getting even even lower than that. So all of a sudden, they're winning against the Eagles where it was cool. Basically takes them out of the Marvin Harrison Jr. sweepstakes. Because you're not going to trade up for them. Because you're right. going to have to be trading up for teams that are going to be trading up for quarterback prices. So you're not going to do that. Um, and I, I do... I do think the conversation gets interesting if the Patriots end up getting the number two overall pick, if the strength of schedule ends up playing out that way, because they'd take a quarterback at two. But then does Washington take a receiver at three? Right. I think that's a big question because for as good as Marvin Harrison Jr. is, okay, you really going to keep it going with Sam Howell? I mean, like Sam Howell's looked okay throughout the year. It's not the worst thing in the world, but... With you benching him for the last two weeks, that's not a great feeling going into next year. You've also got some offensive tackle issues. You've got some major offensive line issues. you got some major pass rush issues now that you traded away Chase Young and Montez Sweat. you really going to sit there and pick Marvin Harrison? Great player, but are fans not just going to have PTSD about having Terry McLaurin for all these years and no one to really throw him the ball? I don't know. I don't know, man. I think that becomes a very interesting debate of what's going to happen at number three if the Patriots end up getting number two and, and Washington's picking that third spot. So you said that, you know, you don't let past failures uh, influence future uh, draft decisions. Let's say for a second in this hypothetical, the Patriots keep Bill Belichick this offseason and mm -hmm. effectively the, the status quo is, is the same. Nobody's changed anything. If the Patriots did draft Marvin Harrison Jr., how worried would that alone make you about him? going forward like right now Marvin Harrison is like a hundred out of a hundred in terms of what we think like he's right up there as certain cast iron superstar prospect it's as, it's almost as good as it gets maybe not a hundred out of a hundred but like 96 97 we're as confident as you can be that this guy is going to be amazing mm -hmm. if the Patriots drafted him at three what would that number drop to it doesn't change my opinion on not Marvin at Harrison. all no it does it, it, it does not change my opinion on Marvin Harrison at all whatsoever the conversation then becomes, I'm not really worried that Harrison won't 
be able to work out in New England from an individual standpoint, I would then turn my attention to what has this quarterback situation been in New England since Tom Brady left? Like that that then becomes the bigger situation is are are you going to become what the commanders have been over the last couple of years where you have a stud wide receiver and you can't get anybody who can give him the ball? So th- him getting drafted by the Patriots, my individual view of Marvin Harrison Jr. would not change at all whatsoever. It would then become a, okay, don't blow this for all of us because we want to see this guy play very well and – we just yeah yeah they'll blow throw you you're a better man than i because my confidence level in marvin harrison just from the patriots drafting him would drop at least five percent probably what's he gonna become kevin white just immediately just becomes kevin white no no, no, i'm look i'm still confident in him but at least five to ten percent less than than i would have been if somebody else had drafted him anybody else anybody else the patriots are so bad at picking wide receivers that simply for them liking him, I would immediately be questioning everything I thought I knew about Marvin Harrison Jr. At least a little bit. Not, you know, I'm not bailing on him. I'm just saying I'm going to need to reassure myself of what I saw beforehand because the Patriots just took him. Hey, scars, scars heal, but they're still there, you know? Can't mm-hmm. totally forget it. I it's understand. not, you know, it's not one swing of the bat the Patriots have had here. It's a lot of misses, and they've been pretty ugly ones. So if, if they go and take a guy you like, it's time to start asking yourself some questions. They're just pointing to the fence and swinging hard at air for three straight pitches. <laughs> That's basically the, what those the, swings of the bat have been for New England. The bottom name on that list that we put up before, <clears throat> Chad Jackson. That's the one mm-hmm. that hurts. I liked Chad Jackson. I thought he was going to be good, and he was awful. He was not I lo- good. Wait, I, they didn't draft him super high, but Second you remember Aaron, Aaron Dobson? Yeah, yeah. Aaron Dobson? So I like. I kind of liked Aaron Dobson. I was <laughs> like, all right, like this guy could be somebody for the Patriots. Mm. And then I think he was for a very small amount amount of time oh he was on that list no yeah no Uh i didn't even know he made the list yeah damn the Nikhil harry one is the one that like that's the worst one because i thought he was bad and he was terrible like that was the one i don't understand because they'd also stayed out of the first round for so many years i think it was it wasn't 06 i think chad jackson was the second round 06 i forget they hadn't used a first-round pick on a wide receiver for a long, long, long time. And Nikhil Harry was the guy that tempted them back into the first right. round. I right. find that fascinating because I I didn't see it with Nikhil Harry, and it, it proved out to be that way. And now, anyway, this will be the next one. Right, last uh, question we have. Declan McDermott uh, from Melbourne, Australia. G'day, team. Uh, there was a lot of fanfare around Bijan Robinson around draft time, and Jameer Gibbs was seen as a late first slash second round pick. Obviously, the Lions' offensive line is very good, as is the Falcons. Who would you rather have for the next seven plus years after 16 games of seeing both these guys perform as rookies? So, Bijan uh, Robinson has been has had the worst rookie season of the two, but has been dealing with Arthur Smith. Uh, whereas Jameer Gibbs, once they started using him as a running back and kind of dropped the offensive weapon trademark, you know, bullshit, he's just a really good player. Uh, but has it changed your analysis in any way? No, it really hasn't. Um, I Bijan is a top three player last year. I had Jameer as a top 20 player. So I, I, the fact that Jameer is having success is is not a surprise at all whatsoever to me. But yeah, Bijan, I think it's just a, a, a totally special talent. I think Jameer is in, in ways certainly, but... 
I, I, I would take Bijan. I would I would not have any reservation about continuing to take Bijan in this instance. Uh, I think that he's getting held back by kind of how the offense is operating and the rotation that he is in. That doesn't take away from the talent that we saw at Texas. Doesn't take away from the quick feet, the elite decision making, the elite anticipation, great hands, the great route running. I mean, he's you talk about the the offensive weapon bullshit label. Uh, that is Bijan, but in an actual good way, you know, leave the bullshit to the side. Like he can be a true offensive weapon for you. He is one of those players that gives you that Christian McCaffrey type of potential where it's just like, man, we can get this guy the ball as many times as we want throughout the game. And there's a good chance the ROI is going to be pretty high. Now, of course, that's not been the case during his rookie season, but it's hard for any rookie to succeed no matter what, let alone an offense that's still really trying to find its groove and its identity. And and we thought that we knew that what that was going to be. And it's turned out to not be the case. So ultimately for as much as I love watching what Gibbs has been, especially over the last couple of weeks, man, he is running so confidently. You are seeing that top speed from him at all times where at the beginning of the year, understandably so, Guy's a little reserved. You know, he's trying to figure out the speed of the game. You know, you're not seeing that top speed nearly as much. We have seen that and that explosiveness over the last couple of weeks. So it's been a lot of fun to see, but I would still be going with Bijan Robinson. Yeah, I think I would as well. To me, the only thing that's changed has is, um, you know, before the draft, we were essentially asking the question, uh, is Bijan Robinson so special that you toss out of the window all of the things we've been saying about running back value and how high you draft them and all this kind of stuff, you know, over the last few years? Like, is he so special that you say the rules don't apply to him and, mm-hmm. and we should ignore the, the rules of thumb because he's different? And I think the answer to that question has become no. Like, he is a special talent, and you, you only have to watch him play. Forget the production. Just watch him for any period of time, and you'll see a special play, and you'll go, wow, that is insane. But clearly, it's not enough that it justifies where they drafted him. Like, they are finding a way somehow to neutralize all of that special talent. Therefore, it wasn't worth the pick where they drafted him, in my opinion. I think the rules, you, you stick to the rules. You go back to the rules, and you say... It wasn't, it wasn't a pick that was worthwhile. You should have picked something else, waited for him a bit later on, you know, where it's better value, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think he's still like an insanely talented player, and I still think he's a slightly better player than Jameer Gibbs, albeit a very different one. What's interesting, though, this year in, the, in Gibbs' favor is you look at the kind of insane PFF grades from running backs this year, they're all very similar types of players. It's Devin, uh, Devon Achan, it's Raheem Mostert, it's, um, you know, Kyron Williams, it's Jalen Warren. It's all these kind of smaller, faster, explosive backs that are suddenly finding space again in the NFL and maximizing that space. I mean, Achan is still averaging eight yards per attempt. It's insane. Um, uh, who was the the guy that um keaton mitchell as well is right up there mm-hmm. like averaging eight yards per attempt before his knee got blown apart as well these smaller faster explosive backs have suddenly absolutely crushed the nfl and the only guy like forcing his way into the same kind of grading and production area is christian mccaffrey who's just you know a singular unique freak show in the most explosive offense in the nfl look i think that vision is still the most important trait for a running back but there's no doubt about it that like you've got to be an athlete to stand out like you've got to be able to see open space but then when you get to open space you got to do something with it and so it it doesn't really shock me that 
that athletes are at the top of this position because it's just it is it is a position that is based so much of athleticism and and i it, i don't know it obviously uh hn averaging over eight yards a carry is pretty crazy but um for me to see these types of players with an elite trait one way or the other to see the field the way that, that I, I think all of these players see the field well or have been seeing the field really well whether it's them individually or a product of their offense like they are able to see the open space well that is how they are able to maximize uh how athletic they are so i still think that that is the primary trait of what makes a great running back in the nfl and that's also why i continue to love Bijan robinson is because for as much as the rest of that offense is kind of struggling with their identity and struggling to figure things out he, st- he, he still has the ability to see the field in an elite level and process and anticipate things between the tackles outside the tackles so 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 well and that trait to me is the most important part of playing the position so i'm still going to bet on that and uh, that's why i'd still bet on Bijan. you look like you wanted to push back when i was saying that uh my my takeaway from their rookie seasons would be that Bijan robinson the answer to that question was that he was not special enough that you throw out the rules of running back drafting you have a different take <laughs> yeah so I understand what you were saying there because it has obviously come out to be okay. He is not. How do I say this? No player is coach proof. I think is probably the best way that I can say this. Bijan, it it's not like he's being used in every way imaginable, and he's just not giving you the ROI he's just not really been given the ball in advantageous ways in an advantageous rotation because the the Falcons don't know what they're doing. It's, it's a different conversation to me that are you so talented that you are positional value proof versus are you so talented that you are coach proof? Because one coach proof is much more harder to, 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 to overcome in my opinion than positional value. If we would have had the same conversations about Bijan Robinson and said, you can use him in so many different ways. He's not just a ball carrier out of the backfield. You can use him in the slot. You can use him as a receiver out of the backfield. You can use him in motion. You get like all these ways. We use Christian McCaffrey as the example, but it's it's an easy example of a, of a back who is showing that they are positional value um, proof because of all of the extra value that they can bring while playing that position, having that position tag. That, to me, has not changed about B. John Robinson. But it is so, 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 so difficult to be coach-proof. If your coach and your scheme and how you are deployed and where they are telling you to line up on the field and what to do, how often you are prioritized in the offense, you can't overcome that part. You don't have any control over that. So that, to me, is 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 where I think the conversation is a little bit different and I would push back on you. I see what you're saying, but I still believe that he was good enough to be a positional value proof running back but you it's it's really hard to 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 even still be able to do that with a coach who is not really using you correctly i think that's the conversation and that's what we're seeing with Bijan. i mean i guess my question would be what would he be doing in a situation that wasn't uh, Atlanta, but, you know, wasn't the best running back situation in the world. So if another team had taken him in the top 10 somewhere, whether it's like Arizona, right? Like James Conner has been pretty good for them this year. Mm-hmm. What would the upgrade from James Conner to Bijan look like? Or if Houston had drafted him, you know, and he was in that backfield instead of Devin Singletary, um, like he was the guy the PFF Bobby was deploying, what would it look like? I just, 
I think my takeaway from this year is probably, okay, Arthur Smith, I think, is the biggest issue there and mm-hmm. not, not using him correctly. I just don't think... I think we've seen enough to say that he wouldn't have automatically invalidated all the things you think you know about running back drafting. Yeah, but I don't think that that's a fair conclusion to close the book on for a rookie who's in a bad coaching situation. You know what I'm saying? Like, we could still get two, th- two year two, year three Bijan, and he shows up and is this incredible return on investment kind of a player out of the backfield as a rusher or in the passing game. Uh, or in the blocking game like that to me the reason why I, I'm not I'm not with you totally on that assessment with him is it's a rookie season in which he is in an offense that the coach is holding him back it feels like so I'm not I, I, I can't tell you that Bijan is not going to become this player year two year three whatever it is because I still think he has the ability to do that so that's but that's I kind think of the stance that I'm but I think that's why the kind of the rules of thumb for running back drafting exists because running back is such a unique position now where the rookie contract might be it. It might be all you get from the guy before you have to move on because it's not yeah, worth but- paying him the second contract. And um, when you're drafting him that high, like this is part of the conversation. When you're drafting him that high, he's immediately one of the best paid running backs in the NFL. So you're, the conversation essentially has to start with, is this guy going to be one of the best in the NFL in terms of production immediately and be that way throughout his rookie contract? And if he's not, you can't really draft him that high. Regardless of what the reason is, like whether the reason is he's the coach is killing him or the situation is killing him. Like the point being, if he isn't capable of overcoming all of that, you can't take him in the top 10. So Bijan has played, uh, how many more snaps do you have? Okay, so he said, because I'm, I'm looking at McCaffrey's rookie year, because I remember McCaffrey didn't do a ton his rookie year either. Right. McCa- Mc- McCaffrey had 435 rushing yards, but they had 651 receiving yards. So they used him as a ton as a, as a receiver, but Bijan's got 384 receiving yards. He's got 948 rushing yards. Like, I don't know, man. I, I, f- I feel as though... He's still on track to be this type of a player where you where you go, yeah, he was one of the very few blue chip offensive guys. You draft him in the top 10 if you want an offensive weapon type of a player. I still believe that he could be that. It's just hard to see it because it's hard to overcome a coaching situation like what we have seen in Atlanta. And I don't know if it's all Arthur Smith's fault. Obviously, he's the orchestrator of it, so it, it should fall on his shoulders a good amount of it. But the quarterback situation's been bad too. They've been all sort they've been out of sorts kind of figuring that out and I don't think they've made it as easy on themselves as they could have been, but my opinion on Bijan really hasn't changed. It really hasn't. But even McCaffrey, I think, is an in- even McCaffrey, I think, is more of an argument in favor of the rules of thumb of not drafting running backs high than he is the other way because because he's won, right? Well, because Carolina, even when he was amazing in Carolina, it it wasn't helping them. <laughs> like, sure, the, sure. Like the on-off I splits. I I, def- I I understand what you're saying there, and. Look, if we want to get into draft philosophy, the Falcons have, I don't think, have been aggressive with the, with fixing the quarterback position as they should have been over the last couple of years. So, like, that is more of an issue. There's no question about it. But were they going to draft – who were they going to draft at eight last year? Levis, maybe? Because Richardson off the board, Stroud's off the board, Young's off the board, you know? So at that point, either you like Will Levis or you're going with the maybe next best offensive player that you have, and that was Bijan. So 
if Richardson's on the board, if Stroud's on the board, and you're taking Bijan over those guys, certainly, yeah, it's we're 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 killing the pick a lot more. But I also look at where they are, and if you take into account the fact that they just straight up have not been as aggressive enough to improve the quarterback position, or look, I guess they were in the Deshaun Watson sweepstakes, so right. I guess they were aggressive. They just didn't they just didn't get it at that point. But I don't know. I I, I ultimately do not fault this Falcon selection much still, or certainly as much as it seems like you do. Yeah, I mean, I I just think that was the conversation. Like, my default starting position was I'm probably against picking a running back that high, but Bijan is so good that I'm wondering if he's the exception. And I the only thing I think that's changed is after year one, I think he's still that good. But the answer to that, in my opinion, is no. Like, stick with the rules of thumb. You're better off because the chances are you're not finding a unicorn. You're just finding a guy that looks amazing and the rules still apply to him. He's not good enough to to change the rules. And I think that that's probably what this year has shown from Bijan is that as amazing as he is, Arthur Smith can still go, you know what? I'm going to give the ball to Patterson instead. I'm not fully there with you. All right. That's fair enough. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not fully there with you because I'm not sitting here and saying that like Bijan would have been worth more than a quarterback. Like maybe they should have just taken Levis because it would have mean more for them. But I still believe that Bijan can be that caliber of a player, even in his rookie contract, if the Falcons get better at quarterback and get a better, more cohesive offensive identity. I still think he can be that player. Well, I invite all of you listeners to let us know whether you uh, side with me or with Trev or whatever your opinion is, whether it's somewhere in the middle entirely. And of course, go and vote for us to win an award because being nominated is great, but all of us want to win. We are, we're that type of people, you know, frankly. So we are nominated as a finalist of the best American football podcast category in the sports podcast awards. You will find the link to go vote in the description of this show, whether it's on YouTube or the audio version. You'll also find it on my pinned tweet at PFF underscore Sam. UI is not great on the phone, so you might need to use a desktop to actually do it, but it's very easy on the desktop, and we appreciate all of your votes. Uh, I believe myself and Steve are back tomorrow. Certainly I will be. I believe Steve will be as well, Um, and we'll talk to you then.